Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Janine Brown. Dr. Brown is professor of New Testament at Bethel Seminary. She's focused much of her research and writing on the Gospels, hermeneutics, and interdisciplinary integration. In addition to a book on biblical hermeneutics and two books on integration, she has published three commentaries on Matthew's Gospel and one on Philippians. She is a member of the NIV translation team and is an editor for the NIV Study Bible. Her current writing projects include a commentary on 1 Peter and a book on themes in 1 Peter. So it sounds like you've done a lot, and you're also a professor of New Testament at Bethel Seminary. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming down. I appreciate being here. Thanks so much for the invitation. Yeah, so I thought we'd start by maybe hearing a little bit about your faith background and how you grew up in in church, if you did, or how you came to faith. Um, So maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. Uh, I did grow up in a um, family that believed in Jesus and um, read the Bible and followed, um, you know, followed the Christian faith, uh, regular attender at church, you know, was there Wednesday nights, Sunday nights, Sunday mornings, of course, Um, through camp, all that wonderful stuff. Um, And it was a great foundation. Um, And as I grew older, I became more and more interested in Bible study and... um, I remember teaching uh, as a 10th grader, 4th graders at camp on 1st John. I remember very particularly the purple sheet they gave me, and I wrote all over it. And I just went away from the whole session kind of mesmerized by this process and what, what it meant to study. And, of course, I didn't know exactly what it meant to study Bible, but I, I was giving it my best shot as a 10th grader. And I don't remember what the – I don't think the kids were all that impressed. I was just sort of in an aura afterwards of – this is just amazing. So it kind of set me off on this trajectory of study of the scriptures. Um, I certainly saw my parents doing, but I think that I um, I just felt a deep curiosity uh, to know and learn more. Uh, and so my faith really propelled me in that direction and led me to seminary eventually and then for doctoral work after that. Okay, so um, I think I saw on your website or a website that you did a degree in music is that I'm correct? I'm a music therapist, although okay. I'm not a practicing music therapist. So I did a degree in music at University of Wisconsin, Eau Claire, and was a music therapy major. I was deeply involved with the University Christian Fellowship there, and so a lot of my faith development happened in college with those folks in university and in this very integrative thing that was and is music therapy. So music, but psychology and biology, and had anatomy, physiology, um, and then courses that brought all that together. And so I think my deep interest in, in, in integration between disciplines, even though I'm you know, grounded firmly because of New Testament studies and it's where I do my stuff mostly, kind of comes from that background of being very eclectically oriented. I like to do a lot of things. I play the piano, uh, I, you know, um, write music. Um, just it, it, the creative part of me uh, finds expression in a variety of areas, I guess. Yeah, that's really interesting. My, my supervisor... I think went to Vienna Academy of Fine Arts and played oh piano goodness. for like hours and hours every day. And he attributes that to a lot of his discipline and mm. creativity coming together. And it seems like maybe something like that is similar for shaping your interests across the field and your your own writing. Yeah, I mean, I remember spending hours in the when practice rooms when I was uh, taking those courses, and also. It's where I became, uh, kind of realized I loved music theory. One of the reasons I like to write music is kind of getting into that. How does this all fit together? And I do think that is my interest in hermeneutics comes out of this. I don't want to just know the 
the topic, but sort of the meta questions underneath. So music theory, music history, I just love that stuff. Um, so I, I think there's a correlation there that I really enjoy getting into the why yeah. something, what, why of the thing we are doing. When we practice something like reading the Bible, interpreting it, what's going on, what's behind the scenes, why are we doing it, what does it look like? So I, I think there are correlations and uh, nothing's wasted. God uses so much of um, where we've been and where we go. Yeah, so how, how did you shift from studying music to pursuing biblical studies and an MDiv? Yeah, it wasn't obvious, was it? Um, so I was involved with the University Christian Fellowship on campus, and then I, I went on staff part-time. Um, I had no formal training. University does a great job training their students um, in inductive method of Bible study. Uh, but I went on, on staff work. I did staff work part-time and then realized I just needed more training. My my supervisor in university at that time was uh, just starting courses at Trinity, and he was loving it. And he said, you have to go to seminary. And, and I'm like, well, that sounds really good, actually. And I'm from Minnesota, and my parents live in the Twin Cities. I think I'll go to Bethel. I knew some people at Bethel. So I, I took up his advice after a few years. And I thought, um, and I, I, you know, was really intending to get more training to do student ministry, which I loved. And I just felt like I needed more confidence in, in biblical studies and uh, Bible theology. And so when I arrived at Bethel, um, I had amazing teachers, and I had the amazing opportunity to work with um, Bob Stein, Robert Stein, Dr. Dr. Stein, as I called him for many years. Mm-hmm. Um, even, rec- you know, even to recently, it's hard for me to say just his first name. Uh, amazing scholar in New Testament, and he asked me to be his TA, and he asked me to teach um, introductory Greek, and so I got all sorts of opportunities to teach and to research, and he encouraged me to think about PhD work, and he was really instrumental in my journey. Okay, so had he already written his hermeneutics book at that point, or were you around while he was working on that? He he was, um, he had done his synoptic problem. He had done his method and message of Jesus teachings. And I think it was going into second edition, but he was in the process of writing playing by the rules, which was the first title. And then that became the subtitle, um, his interpretation book. So, but he had us reading Edie Hirsch, which is a literary theory theorist. And so, his book, Validity and Interpretation, was my first read in seminary, which was pretty hefty. And he was taking that work and really disseminating it in, in his book. But I didn't get to read his book until you mm-hmm. know, a few years later. And then I used that when I was teaching at Bethel because it was such a great little introduction, not just to how to study the Bible, but, but the, the theoretical issues around studying the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I want to ask you about Hirsch a little bit later because he makes an appearance in your book. And as I was reading your book, I was thinking, man, there have got to be people who are reading this who, on the one hand, are not that pleased that you lean into Hirsch, but then people who like Hirsch might think, you're going way beyond, or mm-hmm. or maybe you're too broad in your interpretive practices. Have you ever gotten feedback like that from different angles? Um, a little bit. I mean, in, in the sense that Edie Hirsch is a, uh, you know, strictly authorial intention and loves that term mm-hmm. and um, doesn't see a problem with that term. Many people have problematized it. So I try to um, talk about what I mean by that by using language of communicative intention, which means the author that we know in the text itself. So the implied author as we listen to the text and study it. Um, so I've heard people problematize it on that side. Like that's just naive um, you know, the intentional fallacy. You're trying to reach something you'll never get. And I then try to 
modify it to say what I mean, it's really a textual entity I'm after. I mean, it's not we only. I mean, we have to know the historical context all of that, but we we are looking for the the intention of the text, mm-hmm. though that's not disassociated with the author, of course. Um, so on the other side, um, you know, I, I have a feeling that people who think I I go sort of too broad in my uh, what I kind of embrace or what I think about when I think about communicative intention, uh, they probably just don't use the book in a classroom or don't really, you know, they kind of drop the book and leave it aside. So I don't always know about those folks. Um, sometimes in writing you might hear something, but not as much as I would think. And I'm, I've been surprised at the range of places that use my book as a textbook. You know, mm. range of schools, different viewpoints on all sorts of things have found it to some extent valuable and I'm very gratified by that. I'm surprised by it, but I'm also gratified by it. This is the only book that is in second edition, and if any of your listeners are thinking, so who gets to decide that? That's not the author. <laughs> the author doesn't say, hey, I want to do another version of this. Um, the publisher says it still has longevity. It still has a take. It's landing for people. Let's do another edition. So I've not been asked to do any other things in second okay. edition. So this one seems to have hit a chord in a wider variety of settings, and I'm grateful for that. Well, I didn't come across it until the second edition came out. Okay. I had seen footnotes of your first mm-hmm. edition in other places and just, you know, like most things, added it to an Amazon wish list and never got around yeah. to picking it up. But then when I was seeing it in an updated edition, and I was prepping to do some teaching. I picked it up and ended up just spending a whole day reading through it. Oh, really, really kind? interesting. <laughs> and it's a topic I'm interested in, so that that also helps. But I really appreciated it. But before we get into your book, I just want to ask a couple more questions. Maybe you could talk about the focus of your scholarly work. I, I read your, little, your blurb from the Bethel sure. website, but maybe you could tell us a little bit more about your academic interests. Absolutely. Um, I did my dissertation in Matthew, and so I'm, I'm a gospel scholar, and I uh, have enjoyed spending a lot of time there over the years. I've written three commentaries on Matthew, one sort of an embedded one in a one volume, but otherwise a couple of freestanding commentaries on Matthew. I have written journal articles, so it's been a, a deep focus. I've you know published a little in John, just a little bit, um, and a little bit in Luke Acts. But, uh, so Gospels is kind of my focus with Matthew really in the center there. I've also, um, from early days... Um, published in interdisciplinary conversation, co-writing with colleagues in psychology, social science, because we have a marriage and family therapy program at Bethel. These folks were people I chatted with routinely, and we found just some interesting places to do collaborative work. So um, Becoming Whole and Holy is a collaborative book. Um, uh, Relational Integration of Psychology and Christian Theology with Steve Sandage. Um, so those have been fun areas to delve into where I don't have to become the expert in psychology, mm-hmm. which I'm not. But I, I really collaborate with intelligently, intelligent and amazing, yeah, amazingly wise people. Um, and then more recently, I mean, I work on the translation team for the NIV, so translation is kind of an interest area of mine, though I haven't published much in that area. I've published more on hermeneutics kind of in different venues, um, articles and those kinds of things. Uh, but more recently um, was asked to do a commentary on, f- uh, well, it was, I was asked to do something on a Pauline letter and I was originally offered Ephesians, but I've done a lot of work in Philippians. My upper level Greek students study Philippians. And so that I was like, could I do this one and not that one? Because I know more of the secondary literature, which means the commentaries and monographs and journal articles. So um, they said yes. 
And so I did a commentary on the Tyndale series, which is just a lovely little series that's not too deep. Really a nice companion to reading Philippians is just grab the Tyndale series. I was reading, my first commentary ever was Ralph Martin's little Tyndale Philippians commentary. That was the first one I ever owned and read alongside of a book. So um, to do another version of that book, not to replace it, but to just to complement it 30, well... 40 years later was was pretty fun. Yeah, that that's really neat. And I think that series is really helpful for just average church people it is. because it is so readable. Um, I, I know people Not in our church long. have used it. Yeah, yeah that's great. So, I couldn't do a ton of footnotes, which is hard for me, but I, I was like, nope, okay. Uh, you know, point people in the direction of some interesting further looks, but really try to stay with the text and just help people read the text as it sits in front of them. Yeah, so is that commentary out already, or is that mm-hmm. something you're... Okay. came out last spring. Okay. So, yeah, 2022. So that one's out, out there, and I really love it. And um, uh, Beth Moore and Melissa Moore, in their study on Philippians, cited at one point, I guess, because oh. I heard that in the Twitter universe, Twitterverse, or whatever yeah. it's called. I'm not big on social media, but I heard that it got a shout-out. There so you go. Kind of That's great. That, so. so so what's the biggest misconception about Philippians that most of us would have that oh, you would want to correct? Yeah. Oh, I, I don't know if I, well, yeah. Uh, I think what people get right about it is that it's this warm, relational letter. Some of the, um, you know, some monographs out there, some voices out there hear more conflict in the letter uh, and I was just trying to look for it, and I couldn't find it. I mean, I, I, I can see where people see. They take a trail here and a, and a moment there and go, I wonder if that's some bigger kind of issue behind it. But I think it's his, his warm, fuzzy letter. I mean, I do <laughs> I think that's Paul. Paul, it's not, if you take the Paul of Galatians and Romans as often perceived and try to fit that person into Philippians, you might have to, you know, hear more kind of conflictual stuff. But I I just think it's a lovely letter. So if you read it and go, oh, that was nice. I think you're on the right track. Good. Um, chapter two, the Christ hymn, or what I like called Christ poem. I think it's poetry, mm-hmm. you know, truly not just kind of a high register of, of the letter. Um, and that's debated hotly. But mm-hmm. most of our translations put it in some sort of poetic form, and I think that's right. So there's a lot you can get wrong, I suppose. There's always something. But I like to think that if people are reading the whole and reading it numbers of times, which is what I make my students do, read Philippians every week during a Philippians elective pretty much. Mm. I mean, four chapters. It's not real hard. Uh, and and just hear the themes. Hear, hear what's going on. Hear the communication. Pay attention to the tone and not just mm-hmm. the, the words. I mean, we always hear tone and words in real life, so listen for it there too. Yeah, good, good. Well, finally, I wanted to ask you about your role at Bethel Seminary. What what do you do on a semesterly basis yeah. over there? Yeah, and I've been there for about twenty three years. I started full time in twenty um, in two thousand, but I was doing adjunct teaching way back nineteen ninety five. So I've been there a long time, and I was a student before that. So it's kind of home base. Um, I I teach you know regularly. I teach you know five six courses a year, and I also direct online programs. That's part of my role. So I have some administrative role because I've always kind of jumped into interim deaning and then back out again, kind of as people, as the administration needed me to do that and then asked me to, I'd be sure I can do that for a year or two and then back to the classroom mm-hmm. and back to a lot more research and writing. Um, so yeah, I, I 
teach uh, in the master's program, sometimes in the doctor of ministry program. We have something called Seminary for Everyone that's for lay folks, and courses offered in January, June, and October, and I'm helping to kind of pioneer that and, and move that forward, and that's been really fun. Great, great. Well, in your book, Scripture as Communication, that I wanted to talk to you about most, you advocate for a communication model of hermeneutics. So maybe you could talk to us about how that differs from other models, and maybe even what someone might mean if they talk about a model of hermeneutics, yeah. because I think many people might think you just read right. and interpret. What, what does model have to do with this? Yes, uh, that's a great question. Um, so uh, it helps me to lay the communication model up, again, what, up against um, what, and, and most people don't use this model, but it is, it is a model that was in communications theory a long time ago, uh, the code model. The idea that somehow um, communica- um, scripture is just, and the way we talk is just sort of uh, more like a code. You plug in kind of a, and com- compute the output. This is what it means by just A plus B plus C equal D. Um, and uh, a communication model taps into communication theory, things like speech act theory, relevance theory, which you don't have to know about to kind of utilize some of the best pieces of. And, and we often do it when we're listening to people talk to us today or write a letter to us today or when we pick up a book today. We use a, I think we really use a communications theory. And many people who write Herbert books have something like a communications model. It's not that mine is unique. It's that I kind of highlight that aspect of it, that we're really kind of bringing together all sorts of pieces of how we understand other folks, because I really see the New Testament writers, the Old Testament writers, those who um, put together and wrote scripture uh, as communicating, wanting to communicate deeply with their audiences and their audiences at that time. And then the idea that now this is brought together as scripture and, and we are truly one of, um, you might say, the intended audiences. Joel Green talks about we are that part of the people of God from way back. We're in that line of people that the text is for. There's our saying first in that original context and then thinking about how we how do we that bring, it, bring that into today. So I, um, a communication model helps us to really tap into the idea that authors are deeply wanting to impact their audiences. Yeah, in your earlier description about your interest in integration makes sense to me of why you would highlight these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but since you mentioned speech act theory and relevance theory, maybe we could talk about those briefly. I think I understand both of those not to be so much theories of interpretation, but descriptive descriptions of how we actually just communicate. And then you're taking these descriptions that from other fields of study mm-hmm. in showing how it influences our interpretation. Uh, is that right to say? Yeah. And these are like kind of linguistic literary theories, linguistic maybe more so. And I really, I mean, I don't require even my students who read the book to kind of become a speech act theorist or a relevance theory, relevance theory theorist. Um, instead, I say, here are some of the payoffs of paying attention to this and mm-hmm. knowing a little bit about speech act theory. One of the pieces I bring out related to speech act theory is just that words uh, not only say things, they do things. That's the famous title of the book. Um, and and that language impacts. And, it, it, and people mean to use language to help me to move along and do something and not just think something. Both of those go together really well. Understanding what you're saying, 
but you might also want me to do something with what you've just said or out of what you've said. Uh, so speech check theory, I, I kind of emphasize that basic sense that language is very powerful. I mean, not on its own, but when, as someone harnesses it to, to try to persuade. And that's what the New Testament writers and the Old Testament writers are often doing. They're persuading their audience toward a particular way of thinking and a way of being, a way of acting, very holistic. And then relevance theory, um, pulling out of uh, that, and, and really, um, Joel, uh, no, sorry, Joel Green, uh, Gene Green from Wheaton College was writing on this topic of biblical studies and relevance theory, and I heard him give a paper way back when he's published on this topic since, and he was really influential for me to say, to, to say this is a really helpful theory. And what I'd want people to understand about the theory is that every utterance, that can be a sentence, it can be a whole book of the Bible, be the canon. I mean, it can just any anything that's said, depending uh, small to big. Every utterance has a context um, that author and audience share. Original audience, original you know the author, and um, they can assume a lot. Mm-hmm. So if I said "ouch" right now, it's one word. It's an utterance, um, but it. It doesn't have a context yet because you're looking, looking at me thinking because we can see each other and you're saying, hmm, what just happened? But, you know, if my my grandson, who's three, runs into something and says, ouch, I, you know, we just, every tons of this have been communicated. I need to, do you want a Band-Aid? We have a mm-hmm. whole thing we go through when he has an owie. Um, and it was one word, but it had a huge context, right? There's a lot of Im- implicit stuff going on. So um, relevance theory says when Paul's writing to the Corinthians and he says now about the letter, I wrote to you, chapter 7, verse 1. We need to perk up and say, we don't have that information, but they did. So what are we going to, how are we going to fill that in as best as we can? Mm-hmm. Um, and he doesn't have to say, I wrote you a letter in which you wrote, in response to the letter you wrote, um, and or no, I'm writing this letter in response to the letter you wrote, and here's what you wrote to me. Nobody has to say that. Mm-hmm. Um, we kind of wish that they did, but that's not how communication works. You say kind of, for relevance here, you take the kind of the most obvious point um, of context and say that helps us decipher what's going on. Yeah. So in communication, no one can be maximally explicit in what they're saying or else you'd be talking forever. But the context that everything, you know, if someone had just said a, a mean joke to somebody or dissed them and someone said, ouch, that would mean something different based on the context yes. than your child running into something. Yeah. Um, I give the example in the book of put a lid on it. Yes. That, um, that means one thing in the kitchen with my husband as we're putting food away after dinner. It's something quite different in many other contexts. So when we're chatting and I'm not liking what you say or you're talking too much or, you know, hopefully I wouldn't say that in that context. But, you know, the, those kinds of statements are um, disambiguated. Mm-hmm by context. And so the, the idea that the first hearers of Scripture would have had such good context to understand doesn't mean they could have never misunderstood. It's just they had a lot more in their arsenal of what's going on to help them understand what the biblical writers are talking about. Yeah, well, I really appreciate how those sections emphasize that what is said is really important, but you have to go beyond just attending to certain words or definitions to Think about the context, but then also about what an author is doing with what they say. So I think you used an example in your book of a mom asking her kid who's like tosses his backpack to the side and runs to play video games. 
you know, did you do your homework yet? And you're showing, well, there's an explicit statement that's a question, but it's not really a question. That mom is doing something different. So how how important would you say it is for us as we read the Bible to pay attention to what's said, but what? how important is it to go beyond what's explicit in a text? I think it's essential for us to pay attention to the context in which it's written, the historical, social context. This doesn't mean we have to be historians you know, of the ancient world. I mean, in some ways we need to do a little bit of that, but we don't need to do a PhD in that or anything like that. We just need to um, be as conversant as we can in that time frame. Uh, N.T. Wright is a great little quote that he said something like, you'd think it was just in a little, you know, flyer kind of thing, I think, for one of the publishers. And he said, you think if um, God decided to become human in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, we'd want to know more about that first century world and Nazareth and, you know, this this whole place where Jesus um, lived and and um, ministered and died and was raised. So um, knowing a, enough about that so we can get a good sense of how the, uh, the whole of a biblical book, the whole of a message uh, from a biblical author lands in that context. How did a particular psalm land um, uh that references Babylon by the rivers of Babylon. I mean, how does that land in that context? What does that mean? What does that look like? So um, learning more is really helpful. There are some great tools that can help us in doing that. Um, But reading, uh, my two things I want to press people to do typically is read for the whole, read a whole biblical book, and think about it in its original context. It's not that you never turn to ask, what does that mean for today? We are often in, intuitively asking that if, if we're believers, if we believe the Bible has something to say to us. Those are great questions. But asking those prior questions uh, helps to back you up and go, okay, do I really understand this text well as I bring it into a contemporary context? Well, speaking of understanding a text and searching for meaning, obviously that idea is a little bit thorny on figuring mm-hmm. out you know, what is our purpose in reading the Bible? Which meaning are we looking for? Can we arrive at meaning? meaning? And and you spend a significant amount of time establishing some ideas about meaning at the start of your book. So I'm wondering if you could talk us through what meaning we're looking for when we read the text and maybe even what the meaning of meaning is. Yeah, well, I give a long definition of meaning, which I'm sure people don't appreciate a whole lot, but... um on page 37, I read, I write, meaning is the whole of what an author intends to communicate with their specific audience for purposes of engagement. That's kind of the, the heart of it. And then I say meaning is textually inscribed and it's conveyed within, I could go on, but that's, uh, that's I think, enough for our purposes to talk about. Um, it's, it's the whole of what an author intends, which means it has both um, sort of explicit a- angles to it and implicit um, angles or implications to it. Um, it's what they intend to communicate with their specific audience. So it kind of highlights again that original audience, not that that's the only audience that matters, but it is the one we can tap into to kind of check our work, if we want to put it that way, for purposes of engagement. And they're uh, certainly for understanding and for trust in um, God and belief in who God is, but also for, you know, Certain biblical authors want us to worship, and others want us to um, follow a particular way of living, and others want us to um, 
live in light of the kingdom and proclaim that message of Jesus. And so, you know, as you think about kind of all the active ways that biblical authors shape their audiences, I wanted that to be part of a meaning as, meaning as well. So it's not just a cerebral thing. But yeah. really trying to grasp what an author wants his audience to be and do and think and feel, understand. Yeah, so then when we're reading, we're looking for the author's communicative intention. Mm-hmm. The meaning is sort of sourced there, but it has ramifications beyond the ancient context. And I think sometimes we talk about a distinction between meaning and significance mm-hmm. or ancient meaning and contemporary meaning. How how do you yeah. talk about that with um, your definition of meaning, including a kind of engagement or responding in appropriate ways to what the author is doing? Yeah, and you know the, the traditional language is application. So you know, um, determining the meaning of a text, applying it today. Um, I like to use the language of contextualization. The last two chapters of my book are on that topic, because um, uh, in in a sense, really recontextualizing um, the biblical text or a, a particular book of the Bible, a particular. You notice I push to books a lot because people will say, "Well, so, you know." Do, um, you know, so where do we find meaning? At what point in the text does a, does a verse have meaning? Well, yes, I mean, in a real sense and in a, in a way we use the language, of course, a verse means something. But a verse kind of just is a piece of a larger whole, right? So I tried to push to the book level and say, you know, what does, when you ask the question, what does Matthew mean? Suddenly the idea that there's a single meaning in a text gets kind of um, problematized. You're like, well, that. I think Matthew means more than one thing. I mean, um, but uh, one of the things I emphasize about meaning is that it it has boundaries. It's determinate is the language Edie Hirsch uses, but it has boundaries so that you can say, yes, this is a part of meaning. No, this is not. And then you can hopefully give textual reasons for that conclusion. So um, meaning doesn't become sort of a catch-all for anything that anybody ever said the Bible means. Mm-hmm. A- and yet it we don't have this sense of, I, I find single meaning not helpful because at what point does a passage have a single meaning? Uh, well, if it contributes to a larger whole and it raises, say, in the Gospels, two or three themes that are really important for the whole of the book, does it have three meanings? I mean, I find the question of numbers not terribly helpful, and it might be that I'm not a great mathematician, but I do like the idea of thinking about meaning uh, at the book level to be complex but determinant, which means it can't mean, it doesn't mean everything. And it only means some things. And there are some key messages that Matthew would want us to take from his gospel. Yeah, so maybe you can help us out as we think about that, whether it's just somebody reading their Bible at home Mm -hmm. and they can't read all of Matthew, maybe they're Mm -hmm. reading a passage of Matthew, or in the church world that I'm a part of, expositional preaching is a big deal. And I often hear it described as, you know, the point of your sermon should be the point of the passage. And sometimes that's talking about four verses Mm -hmm. from Romans. Mm -hmm. So how how does the idea of maybe maybe a paragraph doesn't just have a meaning or or maybe that paragraph can't have, you can't get to the authorial meaning just by looking at a paragraph, how how do those ideas relate? Yeah. Well, and I I'll have my students and myself write summaries of sections of text. You can say, what's a good summary of these four verses of Romans? Now, 
if it's four verses, probably just a sentence is adequate, right? But I'll have students do um, an assignment on two chapters of a book or four chapters of a book because I, I try to practice what, what I preach, which is let's look at larger sections of text. And then they might do a paragraph summary. Um, uh, one of the um, disciplines I, I in, in kind of instituted when I was working on my first commentary in Matthew, 33,000 words, just a little bit of a larger one-volume commentary, was that after I was done with the main section of Matthew 1, 1 through 4, 16, I wrote, I disciplined myself to write a summary of the whole. It didn't capture everything by any stretch, but it, it kind of centered my thinking of what that section was about in 4, 17 through 16, 20. I, th- I could kind of see three big movements in Matthew. So I would do a summary after each of those, and then some of the subsections, another summary, and those would show up at the beginning of that section in the commentary. So I needed to write them in one sense. But I, I found it really helpful to just practice this idea of summarizing what's going on. And I do the you know, same thing when I'm going through Philippians. How do I summarize chapter 1, 12 through 16, which is the first major section of the body of the letter? How would I summarize that? And um, I think that gets us at that idea of here's, here's kind of a summary of meaning without having to land on sort of what's the one point of 112 through 26. I don't know if Paul had one point. I think, I mean, is there a driving piece of it? Well, you should see it in my summary, the thrust of it, you know, mm-hmm. the thrust of a text, I think. Um, and and there are multiple themes in Philippians that aren't, don't just correspond one to each section. He's building an argument, and his, his argument for unity is built across any number of texts in, in Philippians, chapter 2, 1 through 4, chapter 4. But there, you know, it, it kind of gets highlighted elsewhere in different kinds of ways. So um, just to talk about unity in Philippians, you can be talking about something the author is intending to communicate, and you can talk about it in the kind of language and contours that Paul writes about it with, and I think that's really a helpful thing to do rather than say, what's the one point of Philippians? Mm-hmm. And most times people aren't asking it at that level, right? They're asking it at two verses, four verses, maybe five or six. Um, and there I, I would just always want to press people to say, well, you may not know until you read the whole again mm-hmm. and hear how it fits. Yeah, so maybe have a provisional oh, yeah, sense always. and then keep building that, refining right. it. And all my summaries get revised all the time, you know, because it's it, a good summary only. It just needs to be refined and, and oh, I missed that piece. And um, it's why I keep on loving what I do is not because you can go back and see something different every time. I'm not, I, I don't see something completely different every time, but I, mm-hmm. I see, I can see something new. And often that's because someone has highlighted something that I wasn't, oh, I didn't hear it from that vantage point or that contextual piece, mm-hmm. historical context helps. Oh, that pops. Wow. That really popped <laughs> in a way that it hadn't before. Yeah. So maybe we could compare a little bit to music where there might be a, a melody driving line, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of harmonies as well. And you shouldn't cut all of those off and just look for whatever that, you know, singular right. melody note is in each case, because you'll you'll lose part of it. Right. And to find the melody is awfully important in music, right? I mean, especially in an orchestral piece or something like that, find where it is and make sure as a conductor, you're helping people to hear it more. I know when I was like playing fugues on the piano, you have to find where the melody line is in a sense. I mean, you have to find what, which part of that, you know, four part plus thing you're working on with the other hands, which one, which one will emphasize. Sometimes it goes into the bass class, sometimes in the treble. So no, that's kind of that sense of maybe finding the meaning of what the single point, 
but you know, uh, finding the theme or the the deepest kind of point of meaning because you want to emphasize it. It's about the relative weight of it in your own maybe summary of what's going on in your own preaching of what's going on. You do certainly want to major on the majors, right? When you're preaching, but it doesn't mean you want to ignore the minors. Mm-hmm. Anything that's there is important to teach people about. And if it's not there, in other words, if it's, it's outside of meaning, and you know, sometimes I suggest things that probably don't fall within meaning, and we, we all do that, then it's, it's time to kind of let that one just go to the side, right? That's actually not maybe what Paul was doing there. Yeah. So when we think about the boundaries of meaning, yeah. um, I think you talk about different kinds of texts that maybe have broader ranges for the boundaries. So, so more fixed texts and then more open texts. Uh, so I think in our world, maybe a prescription is more on a fixed text where that boundary yeah. of meaning is really small. But you want the pharmacist to be really strict in their interpretation of which pill I'm going to get, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so when we're reading the Bible, how can we know which text maybe have broader ranges of meaning for exploration? Or, yeah. or maybe an author would even want you to think beyond the minimum prescription kind of boundary of meaning? That's a great question. And Umberto Eco is the one that talks about open text and closed text, and it's kind of a lens to think about. Um, and open texts are often poetic um, because a metaphor can mean more than one thing. I mean, you have to, you want to select kind of what seems most prominent, again, in relevance theory kind of question of what's, what's most likely here. Um, but metaphor can be used to be ambiguous to play on a couple parts of that image, right? If there's a something that's not like something else, but you're going to c- connect one part of it. Sometimes a metaphor is so clearly that's just one piece that overlaps between that and that. I'm not thinking of a good example. But other times there's, there's is, it feels a little more like the ambiguity can be played on. Um, I'm working on First Peter at present, and I'm doing a book review on a commentary on First Peter by Ruth Ann Rees. It's a great commentary. Um and in chapter two, there's the image of um, uh, the, there's a living stone, and we're built into living stones into a spiritual house. And many people see that as a temple to offer sacrifices. I mean, it, in that context, there's clearly indication this is a temple. Um, John Eliot also, because of the later language, the household of God for the church in chapter four, wants to hear it more. The house is kind of a house that has this image that can be more than, he argues it's more about house than temple, other people more about temple than house. And Reese nicely says, maybe both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, because that's a metaphor, and can, and we hear later in the text affirmed one piece, we hear right in the context, the temple piece affirmed. Might the author want to use that spiritual house as a way to talk about the house of God, mm-hmm. the Christian church? And... This temple that then illuminates part of what the church is to be about, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Um, open. It feels like an yeah. open moment in the text because it's using metaphor, and there are a number of metaphors in for Peter. Of course, there's tons in Scripture where it invites you to think about, go deeper, think more deeply about you know, Jesus as shepherd in um, First Peter as well, the shepherd and guardian of our souls, and the chief shepherd later on, um, what kinds of things are important to know about shepherds, not necessarily today in whether the U.S. or Australia or wherever lots of sheep farms are, um, and but thinking about the ancient world and how that that metaphor is used also for leaders 
mm-hmm. or ancient Near Eastern kings. And, and so bringing in the entailments or the pieces that would help us understand it from that context. But then it is a kind of an open space for thinking about what does this mean? How does the author of First Peter, how does Peter use this picture of Jesus as shepherd? Yeah, and that it's really interesting that many of the key concepts in the Old or New Testament are talked about with metaphor instead mm-hmm. of a very, you know, propositionally bulleted, mm-hmm. precise language that gives a lot of room for meditation and maybe yeah. encourages a kind of meditation and thinking that just a black and white explicit statement probably right. can't do. Right. Uh, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, um, John 1. You can look in Craig Keener's commentary, which are some of the thicker commentaries related to historical background, and find, you know, I don't know, eight to ten possible ways lamb could be functioning based on the Old Testament, just the Old mm-hmm. Testament and the, the various ways that, that functions. And, um, which one is most likely here, and which one is maybe most central here, without kind of losing all other possibilities I'm I'm not a maximalist in the sense that every part of Scripture has twelve. I mean, should have twelve things tucked into it. Uh, I think authors mean things and kind of eliminate certain possibilities, even as they communicate. They kind mm-hmm. of leave them aside. But the most interesting places for these kind of questions are metaphor or um, double meaning. You kind of a pun. John is big on puns, but I always say John's Gospel. Um, there are no more than maybe 12 to 18. I mean, he doesn't use them all the time because you listen to somebody who does puns all the time, and you're like, oh, I can't. it's exhausting. <laughs> I can't. I'm just going to go home and take a rest. So um, even the use of, of puns, like in John's Gospel, plays on words, is pretty tucked in because communication-wise, it gets people so disoriented if that's what you're doing all the time. Yep. So, um and other gospel writers, I don't think, are terribly punny. I mean, I, do, there, I don't hear a lot of plays on words in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. So that's it's interesting to then think about that author, the you know who we hear in John, and what they're doing, and say, well, if, is this another instance of a, a play on word? Mm-hmm. More likely, because we're in John. Yep. If we're in Matthew, I wouldn't be quite so sure. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think sometimes when we're reading the Bible, um, depending on you know, how people have been trained. We're reading it to find the, like a timeless truth. Or um, when I start a hermeneutics class with my students, I give them a list of commands and ask, okay, what's applicable? What's not applicable and why? Mm. And it's a little bit, you know, unfair to do that to them. But um, often, you know, a command like uh, greet one another with a holy kiss mm-hmm students are reading that and saying, okay, we need to get to the timeless truth. That's clearly cultural. That just doesn't apply to us. So it's not applied and we just have to find a principle. I think that's a way that many of us have read the Bible and many people do read the Bible. What would you find right about that? But what would be a helpful corrective for us as we think about reading for a principle or a timeless truth or or excising a cultural yeah. text? Um, I, I think the, the right impulse is to recognize, oh, I'm in a different cultural context than that first reader. Um, and I'd have to say in my Swedish-Norwegian context, I mean, I don't even kiss close family members. I mean, there's no kissing on the cheek and it's like, Meh. So, you know, so how it, tra- it, it is, it feels like I'm in a different cultural context in a variety of ways. That's a really good realization. I think um, the, the then tendency to, to identify as timeless truth or culturally conditioned, which is the language I remember hearing it in, 
um, that that um, implies that some things have no culture around them, and that's something that I just I I mean the Bible is culturally located, and it also is divine discourse. Those are the way the language I use in my final two chapters. It's culturally located, all of it. So we need to pay attention to context. We need to pay attention to, okay, Paul is receiving a letter from the Corinthians. What might that have said that informs chapters 7, 8, 12, and 16? That's kind of where those little moments show up. Um, so it's all culturally located. doesn't mean it's all culturally conditioned and, that, and it's not relevant because if it's divine discourse, if we really believe this is scripture and God speaks through it, spoke through it, speaks through it, but we want to hear the the kind of heavy chord of connection between spoke and speaks, you know, what the original author was talking about with that context and how it applies today, um, how we recontextualize it today. So uh, I think it's um, sort of simplistic to have these two categories because all of it still speaks if we believe is all scripture is inspired by God, God breathed, and, and then... It all is culturally conditioned. So I, in my final two chapters, I try to kind of navigate those questions. And one of the things that I find helpful is, is to think about um, what, what part of the canon does something show up in and, and what part of the story of God's people does that come in. It's, um, so, so things that um, people write after the time of Jesus' death and resurrection, well, that's all the New Testament, I understand, but... Um, you know, some of the, so the Gospels have both things that happened before and the shaping afterward by the Gospel writers. But if we think about the New Testament writers writing after the time of um, the Spirit arriving, they're talking then to this, to, I mean, they're talking, they can talk to us in a kind of an easier way, even though they live in a very different culture. So it's kind of recognizing that different culture, what are the parameters of that culture? How, do, how does our culture differ today? How do we hear that those um, analogies, connections, um, and then where do it just, I mean, I, I, my students do a paper on 1 Corinthians 15 on resurrection, and there's very little in that passage that doesn't just kind of really land well today. Now we need to know what ancient views of life death look like, both in Greek context, Jewish context, Paul's writing as a Jew. Most of the Corinthians tend to have a, seem to have a Greek view that's like, ugh, bodies, ugh, mm -hmm. you know, but I think we still have some of that in our church context today. Um, this, this idea that we're going to be bodiless. Oh, good, good grief, we're going to get rid of that thing. And yeah. yay. Um, but that's not the way the New Testament views it. So kind of the, the ways they apply it today, uh, that passage, and they take some time to apply that passage, really, I mean, so much of it just can just, if we know the context, it's like, wow, that really speaks today. But other times, holy kiss, um, household codes in the New Testament, I'm working in First Peter, so the household code in First Peter that... Um, uh, where the very things that we hear and go, oh, wow, that's, that sounds odd, weren't the things at all that sounded odd in that first context. Um, wives submit to your husband so that if, none of, so if some of them do not believe the word, they might be one. The marked part of that is they might be one in a context where a wife takes on the friends of her husband and first among the friends are the gods. That's what Plutarch says in his advice to brides and groups. Um, he, she's instead going to win him She's going to do it very carefully and thoughtfully and without a word. But it, it's, you know, that's the, that's the really strange thing in that verse, not the submit, which is the thing we go in here, we hear and go, ah, you know, or mm -hmm. maybe, or something like that. And instead what happens is Peter emphasizes 
uh, just in that context, what would be emphasized is a sense of winning your husband to your faith, not capitulating to his, which is the faith of probably the ancestors and what they were used to, and now she's struck out on her own. Wow, that's a tricky place to be. So we, but we don't hear those kinds of, if we don't think about the difference, I think we'll recontextualize in kind of wonky ways sometimes. Mm-hmm. That's a technical term, wonky. Wonky, yeah. Mm-hmm. So when we're reading the Bible, contextualizing, recontextualizing, I think obviously we see certain points in the New Testament where the biblical authors are happy to challenge the cultural norms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then other times they operate within those norms. Yeah. And in our day, as people in a different culture and really in a multicultural yeah. world, mm-hmm. um, is we're trying to navigate these things. Is is there a surefire way to know if the biblical authors would want to challenge our mm. cultural norms mm. or would they want us to operate within our cultural norm just slightly differently? So I think yeah, there are some texts saying. that are really thorny on this that might a lot of people would disagree about. So I I like this holy kiss example mm-hmm. because there are cultures that practice kisses yeah. on the regular. I'm not part of one and of those either. Communities and are to treat one another like family. I mean, this yeah. is this is what families do in the ancient world uh, and and beyond. But I mean, sort of that familial thing is being so emphasized there. Mm-hmm. You know, as you greet your closest family members, that's what the community of faith is to be. It's kind of this profound look but but it wouldn't work in my, I mean I remember it was 2021 so it was still kind of on the on the edge of COVID um, and I saw somebody I hadn't seen for a while and they came up to me and they're giving me a big hug and I'm like and this is not a family member it's not somebody and and I, I like them really well it's just I have no problem with this person but they came at me and I was like oh my goodness I backed up 1200 <laughs> feet you know so it's like the holy kiss coupled with a pandemic suddenly became like, ah, you know, just, and yeah. I don't think they were going for a holy kiss, but they're just going to give me this warm, warm bear hug. Cause that's who the person is. And I'm like, Oh my goodness. You know, it didn't provide the, the goal of that thing. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, I think the thorny area, I mean, I understand what you're saying. I don't think the, the, um, the new Testament authors are not in a position to know that they could change culture um mm-hmm. not not in you know not by sort of defying culture you know are we going to get rid of slavery they're not asking that kind of question but you have this interesting book philemon that presses those boundaries and the household codes which do not and tell slaves how to manage in first peter with a uh, uh, unbelieving uh mm-hmm. intolerant master who's not going to let you worship that christos just not going to um how do you manage that in no easy way rock hard place here's your way forward. And to even give slaves a way forward in that context, slaves weren't addressed in household codes, masters were. So to even give that little bit of agency is kind of a profound moment. So hearing kind of how New Testament writers are thinking about how they wouldn't necessarily perceive the possibilities of whether social reform or something like that, I think that helps us to go, okay, then we're not going to look at them and say, well, they didn't do that, therefore. Mm -hmm. Um, But how they navigated their context. Miroslav Wolf has a great article for On First Peter called Soft Difference. He talks about um, this way of being different in the context that Peter is um, exhorting, but he does it not, it's not a brittle difference. It's this kind of, with gentleness and respect, they are to respond to suffering and to the slander that's coming their way, three, chapter three, verses 15, 16, 17. So, 
this, this, the, the way they do it. I think that's an important message for us to hear. I think in our time when we, you know, this contentious place we live right now, that I think bothers a lot of us, whether within the Christian church or beyond, there's this sense of um, brittle conversation and, and hard and bitter. And what does it look like to be one who does a soft difference? I'm kind of captivated by Volk's title of his article because I think it says something for First Peter, but even maybe beyond it, to say, no, we can be different, and we can, in what ways should we be different? Mm-hmm. That's the hermeneutical question. And how can, in what manner, in what manner are we different? Yeah. With gentleness, with forbearance. The New Testament has some powerful words to describe our character in the midst of this. Yeah, and I, I think that's helpful, and I, I think that question is one I, I'm still still working on, and and yeah. maybe there is no good, clear answer. But I think especially as many Christians are becoming aware of global Christianity, not just our unique edition of it, the possibility of learning from the cultural customs of other places that might be uncomfortable for us, but might also shape us to be yeah. the kind of people the New Testament is looking at. It's always a tough question for me of knowing how to recontextualize or, or mm-hmm. know if um, yeah, may, maybe that culture got it right. And even though I'm not a huggy kind of a guy, maybe I need to become a huggy kind of a yeah, guy yeah. to be shaped in the way that the, the New Testament authors were looking for Christians yeah. to be shaped. Um, so these are these are some questions that I'm, I'm still working yeah, on. And I think recontextualizing, those are, those are tricky questions. I mean, it's not that every passage is easy to understand, but as, as you, excuse me, as you... Um, really grapple with the, the, the meaning in that original context, how do we bring that to bear truly? How do we bring, you know, meat offered to idols, don't sit mm-hmm. in that table in the temple area. How, how do we bring that to bear today? What does that have to say? I mean, I, those, in some contexts, I had a student remind me from Japan that they do have idol temple. They have temples, you know, where people go to worship. So it's not, um, it's not something that we have to say that cultural. Uh, I mean, they can apply things a little more directly in another part of the world from 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. So that's really important to listen to here and then go, so what's at the heart of our obedience here? What's at mm-hmm. the heart of our obedience? Yeah, in, in that example has come up, Josh's mom is Japanese, and uh, she's talked about going yeah. back home and, and the way that relatives relate to ancestors or other people. Yeah. And, and I think it's maybe a good reminder that not every text speaks with the same directness in every mm-hmm. circumstance. So even though a lot of us maybe rightly want to glean something from every verse that we read, it's probably good we recognize that not every text is immediately as applicable or relevant to where we are. Yeah, and one of the things I emphasized in my last couple chapters on contextualization is something called macro-contextualization, where you know the goal isn't to apply a verse— but to say, how does that verse commu- contribute to a whole? And at what point does that larger whole, and it doesn't have to be the whole book, it could be a couple chapters, how, the, what might I hear how to apply First Corinthians 8 through 10, not verse by verse, but as a whole, which is about meat offered to idols, what do we do with it on a variety of levels? Um, I'll, hear, I'll hear recontextualization better once I hear the whole of that section. I think mm-hmm. that's a discrete section that we can listen to, and I wouldn't want to stop at the end of chapter 8 and say, there, now we've got it, now we can apply it. Paul keeps on going with the argument, and chapter 10 is really important to the conclusion of what he does in chapter 8. So doing that kind of study and then saying, ah, 
I remember reading through that in a Greek class with students, and we were actually online for the end of that. We got to the chapter 10, verse 22, which is the end of his argument, really, that started in 8.1. And I had a student who was pressing all the way through about, okay, so what about application? What about you know contextualization? He was just longing for it. He was a preacher teacher. He was great. Mm-hmm. He was in a church context. And and we just sat with 10.22, which is a powerful moment, and you can read it and leave kind of a cliffhanger. Um, students said, well... That'll preach. <laughs> it was, but it took us eight eight weeks of mm-hmm. slogging through the Greek of First Corinthians eight through ten. But that'll preach, and I thought, oh, okay, that's that's what I want hermeneutically for us to do mm-hmm. is to stay with the text, understand it, and then recognize God speaking in that point of contextualization because we were hearing the Spirit there. I mean, I'm saying the Spirit was talking apart from the text, but within the text, the Spirit was shaping our conversation and. But that'll preach meant something. Yeah. Well, that takes endurance and perseverance and patience, which provides a good transition away from talking about the act of interpretation to the person doing the mm. interpretation. And I was pleased that you had a section on that in your book. Um, I think sometimes we skip over the kind of people we need to be when we engage scripture. Yeah. So maybe you could talk to us about the kind of approach or demeanor that we should have as we read the Bible. Yeah, and that wasn't in the first edition. Um, and so, I, and I had read a number of books on interpretation where they they press into that. And I thought, oh, that's really important. So what, what, how would I kind of narrow that down to a few traits that seem really important? I mean, you can do a large list and that's fine too, but I, I was thinking about what's most central in my thinking and uh, what I emphasize is Humility, curiosity, and trust. Um, humility because we don't know everything. And I have found reading more broadly um, is really important for me. It, it keeps me humble. Not in the sense that now I, I'm wishy-washy and I don't know what I think about anything. If you talk with me for two minutes, you know I think very strongly about a lot of stuff. Um, but that it keeps me in that humble place of... Um, Van Hooser talks about, Kevin Van Hooser talks about a hermeneutics of conviction and of humility, holding those together. And I just love that kind of tension, um, deep conviction, but ready to be challenged. And uh, reading outside of a Western context has been really helpful for me in my own Matthew work. And reading um, outside of a um, Western context in hermeneutics has been very helpful too, as, as more works are being done by folks across the globe. Um, humility is just is the place where then I'm going to listen to someone else, mm-hmm. even as I you know I hold pretty firm views on at least Matthew, Philippians, and First Peter. Yeah, um, so I I think that that one is tough for, sometimes for people to hear in connection to reading the Bible. I I think sometimes readers of the Bible like to have a lot of confidence, mm-hmm. maybe sometimes unearned confidence, but it just seems like it's really clear, and then a push towards humility and away from maybe what's actually arrogance and not just confidence is so unsettling because it seems like, well, if I can't be certain, 100% confident, then the Bible's not 100% speaking to me or or something like that. It's a little distance between self and Bible, which, uh, you know, I'm sorry, I'm hitting my headset, so I don't know if that makes a difference, but, um, uh, in, in our hermeneutics class at Bethel, at a master's level, we want a little bit of what Lukaku calls distanciation, a little bit of distance. If it's been that familiar text to me that's 
like my best friend, which is the context I grew up in in the Bible, um, I needed to have a little bit of that distance to, to, to have some of those questions come up. Um, some of our students, though, come and they don't feel at all that they know the Bible or trust the Bible. And then, so then part of that is to engage the Bible and be in a first time in a, in a new way. And we've, I've seen kind of those aha moments. They take time. Mm-hmm. In an educational setting, we have those. Um, I just encourage people to read a little more broadly than they have. Not so that their mind can be changed. I, I don't know if their mind needs to be changed. That's something God knows. I don't know that. Um, but because there's so much value in hearing from people who come from a different perspective. And it's not just on hot topics. I don't mean that. I mean, um, when I did my Matthew commentary with Kyle Roberts in the Two Horizons series, in our um, last section we have a, a chapter on reading um, Matthew with global voices. And one of the things we did was read Matthew with global voices and, and heard what texts are they drawn to in Matthew particularly. Because I know in my own context, I can hear Matthew 25 mentioned a lot, the least of these, which I, I've written on that topic. I love that text. Great. Um, the genealogy is really big in African contexts. And I'm like, I have to get students to, you know, come on, we got to read this genealogy together, right? Um, they're like, this is an amazing place to start a book. So I went to value the genealogy as much if I hadn't read African scholars who say this is really crucial because where you come from and your ancestry is really crucial. And to understand that, that helps me get a better sense of the Jewish context of the first century world in this genealogy of Matthew. I would not be as aware of. So reading more widely helps us to hear even kind of what texts most resonate with people, Christians, across the globe. Mm-hmm. That's really powerful stuff. Yeah, and I think that requires your next characteristic, curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I've thought about all my life, I haven't, curiosity as sort of a virtue. But I, I, I think there's something about that desire to know, I mean, not, and not just that, because some people are wired differently that way. Like I'm a seeker quester. I always want to know and know more and learn more. Um, but the, the kind of the willingness to get outside of my own perspective and just get curious about that other person. I mean, this is not just in what they think about the Bible, but, you know, just in general, I'm kind of an introvert. So when I go into social settings, I have a husband who's amazingly curious about people, and I've learned from him, ask a lot of questions and care about the answers. Don't be thinking about what I'm going to say next. You know, just spend time getting to know somebody. People are fascinating. So um, curiosity is something I think that's just relationally is a real strength. (laughs) I've learned as an introvert who was more kind of how are people going to perceive me growing up. I remember that. And then curiosity kind of got me out of my that place, and it was just a gift. So when I think about it, why someone else, especially somebody else says something about the Bible, and you're like, oh, I don't think that. You know, I, we've all had those moments, right? Um, get curious. I always tell myself, instead of just going, okay, I need to figure out how to defend this, just ask, so why? Why do you think that? Where does that come? You know, I mean, it. So get some of the assumptions behind what's going on. But doesn't that mean you think, would you think this? You know, I'm just getting really curious about how that position got formulated. Because that doesn't mean we have to change who we are. We can be differentiated and, and, and change what we think. But it might reshape us some, somewhat. So I just think curiosity is a lovely thing to keep on trying to do. When you get anxious, get curious. I tell my students, getting anxious about all this stuff. Get curious. That's great. 
So is curiosity something you're born with or can you cultivate curiosity? This is a little bit of a tough question for me because I think some people might be listening to you and say, okay, but I just never know which questions to ask. I like, I'll hear something and I just, I I can't even figure out how to become curious. Well, I I mean, I have two grandkids and they're three and almost two and they are really curious, not about everything. I mean, there's some things they just assume. I mean, they have no no need to know my name, what I do. I mean, they have no curiosity about my person other than, do you want to play with me right now? Mm-hmm. We're going tonight to help with Harrison and Daisy. Is Grandma going to play with me? <laughs> Kate's like, yeah, yeah. I think we know from past experience, Grandma will play with you. But um, So they're very curious about some things and not others. So I think there is a born with kind of natural curiosity, but... Um, I just think people are wired in a lot of different ways. So there's it's there's no shame in not being highly curious. And I've learned that it helps me to, I mean, I'm curious about like the Bible. I've always been curious about the Bible. People are, but I've learned that, you know, it's a helpful skill that can translate. So think about mm-hmm. what are you curious about? Everybody's curious about something. How will I, how could I bring that into a context where I don't usually bring it? Yeah, that's helpful. Your final characteristic or disposition is trust. Could you talk to us about how trust is important for reading the Bible. Um, Paul Ricoeur, I've mentioned briefly, philosopher, talks about a hermeneutics of suspicion, a hermeneutics of trust. He talks about those qualities, and those are that's language that kind of floats around hermeneutics conversations. Um, I mean, I think as a um, as an evangelical, I the the sort of the the stance that's natural to me and that's natural to my community is a hermeneutics of trust. Um, it's not that. Critical reading, suspicion have no place. People have written about this stuff. Um, but I think what it, um, and I've kind of refined the language sometimes to a sympathetic hermeneutic. So I'm going to read Matthew, of, you know, first century Jewish writer um, whose culture is quite different than mine and, um, you know, comes out of a place where, you know, I, I might come at things differently than that person did. But I, I, when I want to read the text of Matthew, I want to stay with it and like kind of Jacob wrestle when I get to the points where I go, and and part of hermeneutics for me is noticing when I go, we all do that at different points. And um, Richard Hayes has this wonderful statement that um, st- staying with the text means we're not running to a comforting cross reference at whatever turn we start to feel that nervous. Wait a minute, that can't say that. Have you ever mm-hmm. read the Bible and go, well, that can't say that? Yeah. For honest, kind of noticing those moments, stay longer. Stay with that author and give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, mm-hmm. so, so yes, I mean, the first century world, I, I will name as um, patriarchal and it has slavery. And it, I mean, it's not the same context I'm in today. I'm kind of grateful for that. Um, but that doesn't mean that those people are tied. I mean, so what are the themes they bring out in those kinds of contexts? What do we hear coming through? Um, stay with the author. That sort of sympathetic hermeneutics of trust says, um, you know, this is from God for me and, and for us, more importantly. And how do we, how do we read in a way that um, comes from that place of trust, from a sympathetic perspective? Yeah, that, that's really insightful. Even as I'm working on Romans 2 for a sermon series, text where Paul is talking about, you know, a judgment according to your works. Yeah. and. I think a lot of us, when we hit that text as good Protestants, want to jump for a cross-reference to say the exact opposite of mm-hmm. whatever Paul is saying there. Right. Instead of just sitting with it, 
trusting Paul that we need that. You've been saved through faith, Ephesians 2. I mean, you can hear the places you want to go, right? Yeah, exactly. That's helpful. Yeah, and and of course, he's building a long argument there, so you need to stay with the argument, and he has, whether he is a straw person or not, but he does have interlocutors, kind of Mm -hmm. people that... that is, you know, he speaks to kind of almost directly, right? You know, you might say, you might. So um, it's not that the text itself can't help to sort of answer some of those questions. Mm-hmm. Romans can. And it's also the case that we don't want to, to jump even to a different part of Romans right away. Let's hear the argument as it's coming along. And that's one of the reasons why um, I sometimes, like, we study Romans in a New Testament exploration class, and I say, okay, so I'm going to challenge you as we finish reading Romans together. I mean, I've given you what I, my, my reading of the text, which I hope kind of hangs together. So there's a coherence here. That's mm-hmm. my job. Your job isn't to take mine and do anything with it, particularly yours is to read the text and have a coherent way it hangs, to, you know, to understand Romans as a coherent whole, because I mm-hmm. think it's coherent, <laughs> um, and then to teach it in a way that your people can hear how it hangs together, which means you might not teach it two verses at a time for the next, you know, yep. 300 years. So you might read, can you teach Romans in, can you preach it in four weeks? You can. There's mm-hmm. nothing that says you can. How about 16 weeks? 16 chapters. Great. Do that. But um, one week, you could. I mean, that would be a little harder, but you could. I mean, the point is, can you can you do that summary work that says, here is essentially what's going on? Could I walk through it? Yeah. So envisioning the way we teach so that people can also take I understand the whole in some way. That's mm-hmm. what I always want people to hear. Oh, I, wonder, I understand a whole of Matthew in a different way. I didn't yep. even know it was a whole. Now I understand it as a whole. Um, or all of Philippians, a little easier, chapter four, four chapters. But is there a way we can help people hear how it hangs together? Yeah. And not get so lost in the weeds that we lose the sense of the whole. Yep. And I think, you know, we could adopt different strategies for different books. So like Romans, I really appreciated Scott McKnight's reading Romans backwards. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I thought... You know, I encouraged our church as we were prepping for this, read Romans 14 through 16 and then read Romans 1. And that was a helpful practice for me. And now as I'm preaching, I'm seeing, okay, I'm hearing this a little bit more from their perspective. And I could see how, like, even the things Paul lists that does bring God's wrath is nothing that they're upset about in chapters 14 and 15. And so there are even implications of, yeah, okay. Yeah, does a weight kind of, of emphasis go when yeah. it's time to live together well? Yep, yeah. yeah. So none of the things that they were perhaps bickering or judging each yes. other about comes under God's judgment in chapters one and two and yeah. three. You know, yeah. so it's very interesting to read it as a unified whole. Mm-hmm. Um, you've been really kind to talk for so long. Maybe I can speed round through okay. a few things here. That's because I'm talkative. You can do well, this and really interesting. Long. This has been fascinating. So may, maybe you could talk to us really briefly about some suggestions for engagement with the Bible in regular practice. Absolutely. Um, I think reading larger sections of text um, can be really helpful. Um, take a little bit larger section than you're used to and and read it and engage it. And you might find you have some different questions that you ask or some different insights. So a larger section of text is helpful. Um, you know, people will ask me if I, you know, how do I read the Bible for study and devotionally? And I've never had an easy time disentangling that after seminary. So I've decided that the invitation is to read holistically at every turn. Uh, so um, even when I'm doing study, looking for ways um, I'm hearing from God for me, 
Dr. Forrest is a very solitary, individualistic thing. I like to also think we try to read communally as a church, as whatever church you're involved in and as a church more broadly. Um, so I would say uh, read a wa- larger sections of text, and um, if it helps you to do your study here and, and have devotions here, great. And if, as my students sometimes say after hermeneutics, you have ruined me for devotional reading, then ask the question, what's been ruined? What are the values that I cannot let go of even when I come to devotional reading? And for them, it's often I have to read larger sections. Then do. I find that the whole of a gospel is just mesmerizing, and it keeps me less certain and more breathless, kind of more like, oh, wow, God is there. And that is always good for my spiritual growth. Mm -hmm. So, um don't try to make it what it seems it can't be anymore if you've grown in a, to a different place. But if whatever works that keeps us reading the Bible is really important. Yeah, and I, I think probably somewhere in there would be an interesting conversation about integrating the whole self of intellect and affection mm-hmm. and action. And I think some of us may be more inclined to separate ourselves mm-hmm. out or compartmentalize our life. And then we approach the Bible in that way where sometimes we read it for yeah. intellect, sometimes for affection, sometimes for yeah. action. Um, do, you, do you have tips for from your own experience of bringing all of you to the table when you read the Bible instead of just part of you? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I, I think being poised to hear from God, no matter what the task is, is, is really helpful for me. Um, I worked on the theme of renewal of creation in the Gospel of John for nine months for a journal article, Sabrina's Catholic Biblical Quarterly, and it was published. And I, so I was working on it for a long time. And it was so enriching my own thinking and sort of this kind of, you know, as, as if eternal life is this thing that's disembodied and later and for John of course neither of those not later it's now I mean life mm-hmm. is now right so so just kind of living in those themes and I'm actually working on a um a essay on the messiah of life in John that's kind of a follow-up right now and just sitting with this idea of, of the god of life now the messiah of life and both the father and the son in John give life um we don't give life we mm-hmm. receive it the son receives life but the son also has the power to give life that's the uniqueness of Jesus as Messiah is in relation to life. I'm just, you know, the kind of the ideas that are floating around as I come back to study it, as I go and do other things. Um, I just find that sort of ruminating on a theme like that has just been very powerful. And then I get to read particular texts and it's like, oh, you know, kind of takes my breath away a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, I just, I think, in a sense, do what works. But uh, with the sense of, um, I think, pressing toward reading more reading more and not thinking that it's most spiritual to read a single verse. Mm-hmm. I just think that a lot of the aughts that I heard growing up about quiet times, it's been helpful to say, you know, that didn't, that didn't fully work once I got to this point, and that's okay. You know, it's not that I don't have my own aughts. It's just to realize um, I don't have to tell other people what their aughts are. I'm not big on that. Yeah, maybe there's a broader diversity of practice that exactly. can be enriching and right. what works for one person might right. not Lectio for another. Divina, I mean, I've, I've tried with my spiritual director and I'm not very good at it. And it, it kind of it pushes against some of my read for holes. So, mm-hmm. but 
I'm not opposed. I mean, I just, it's not something I would say, don't do it. I mean, I just, that's not my job Yeah. to say, how is, uh, how, how do you read? Just read scripture. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> that's good. Um, some speed round questions here for you. When it comes to biblical interpretation, whether it's in the academy or church more broadly, what are some of the mistakes or areas for improvement that you see, whether it's from incoming students or your engagement with churches that we should be aware of as we think about our own development. And again, I'm, I'm not wanting to be highly critical if people are engaging scripture and they're, you know, again, trying to look at context, literary, you know, the whole book, um, historical setting. Uh, those are really helpful practices. Um, uh, the, 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 pa- the practice of sort of just grabbing pieces from a little piece from here and there and all over, um, that can backfire on us. So I just think it being, being careful about the context from which we draw ideas, if we're bringing them together in more of a topical thing. I have a section in my appendices on how to do topical preaching, um, teaching, because um, I think it's, it's you can do that. It's harder work sometimes than just staying with a book. Um, but, I, yeah, I don't... Um, those are some mistakes is, you know, pulling things out of context, but mm-hmm. that's mistakes every one of us can do. So. Yeah. Well, as a professor, you, you see incoming students. It sounds like you do some online mm-hmm. engagement as well. Um, I'm sure you speak at different churches in the area too. What, what are you excited about in the Christian world, broadly speaking? What's been encouraging to you? Yeah. I mean, there can be a lot to discourage. We, we know this um, in our current context, but um, but I think the um, the sense that people are uh, engaging uh, more broadly, um, I'm hearing more voices that aren't just from what has been the center, which is um, you know Western white male in biblical studies. Um, I appreciate those voices, and I learn from them, and I continue to learn from them, and I appreciate hearing. Um, Issa Macaulay's Reading While Black. I appreciate reading Elizabeth Mwuru's, um uh, Biblical Hermeneutics in an African Context. And just there's more availability of all sorts of things um, that are solid and and not highly academic reads. It's not, the, you know, I'm not pushing like monograph level. I'm just saying, now pick up Reading mm-hmm. While Black. It's an amazing book. Oh, my goodness. Um, that kind of accessibility has uh, been very encouraging to me. Um, and... Uh, as a, as a woman in biblical studies, where in, to find other women sort of in an evangelical context when I first went to meetings of the Society of Biblical Literature was tricky. And it's not hard to find anymore. There are mm-hmm. women who come from Wheaton and from Fuller and from Biola. And from, I mean, they're just, they're, they're women biblical scholars that are offering wonderful insights in their area of study. Old and New Testaments. And so I think it's just the accessibility, you know, pick up. These are great. There are great tools out there that you can pick up that um, that might challenge whatever perspective you're coming from. But it might also be just great companions for whatever mm-hmm. you're studying. Yeah, that's great. Um, what resources would you recommend for newer Christians or maybe even just normal, everyday yeah. kind of Christians as they uh, want to try to improve their Bible reading engagement? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you read the Bible, and I think a good study Bible, and I've been part of the NIV Study Bible Project, which was revised in 2020, uh, and I, I, I really think it's a solid one. But there are other solid ones, so it's, this is not so much a 
commercial. Um, but that's nice because it's right there. Now, for some people, they're like, okay, I'm going to rely more on the notes if it's there. So then it might be having something that you have at your side that you can pick up once in a while. You know, N.T. writes New Testament for everyone. I think John Golden Gay has an Old Testament version of it. Uh, you know, with just little slim volumes. The Tyndale series, uh, having a volume next to you while you're studying Philippians or while you're studying Matthew or something like that, that can just f- give you some of the historical context and literary context a little bit on genre, those kinds of things can be really helpful. So, an atlas. I went to drew, uh, went to Israel this year for the first time last, last fall, and, you know, just knowing where things are relative to one another can be really, really helpful mm-hmm. for thinking about the text as well. Um, you've recently updated Scripture as communication. So maybe there's nothing you would add or change about it now a couple years later, but as you look back on it, if there is ever a third edition, uh, would there be things that you'd want to adjust? That's a great question. Um, I took a lot of feedback from what I had heard, and I actually had a student do a review of reviews so I could kind of hear the themes. So I really tried to address those. More Old Testament. Um, I probably had as many Old Testament texts, but I didn't spend as much time in Old Testament because I'm a New Testament scholar. So that was really fun and rich to go into, more diverse voices, um, clarifying, oh, Mark Strauss, who teaches at Bethel now, has used a book forever, more than I have probably, because he teaches a lot of Hermes classes. He was he would send me detailed notes like, my students don't understand this, and I don't either, so maybe you could clarify <laughs> it in the next version. So, I mean, he, he, he just really helped to kind of pinpoint places where theory was a little thick mm-hmm. and not very clear, so that was wonderful. So I'm sure there'll be more of those moments. Um, it's hard to know what will be kind of... I, would, I think, you know, at some point maybe adding talking about text criticism, criticism, translation stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's not, I mean, that's not the book at present. It would need It would need to be an expanded version. So I think next time around, if I did anything, it would be in more deep into genres in both Old and New Testament because I do the big three, poetry, narrative, and epistle. And that's, you know, that's it. Kind of touch on it. So. Yeah. Well, um, are there any, you've talked some about the projects you're working on. Any others that you'd want to mention? Uh, we have several academic-y yeah. type of readers who might be interested yeah. in, in yes. them. Some geeky people like us. Exactly. Um, well, I'm just putting the final touches on a little monograph um, that'll be published with Baker on some lectures I did last fall um, on embedded genre in the New Testament. So I took on um, poetry in Philippians 2, the Christ poem that I think is p- truly poetry, riddles in Matthew, which were just fascinating, using Tom Th- Thatcher's work. Um, Jesus the Riddler is his book on the Gospels. He had dissertation first on John. And then um, The Household Code in First Peter, which I've written on some, and because I'm moving into First Peter, it made a lot of sense. And I've added an initial chapter and a, a final conclusion to it. Um, and that's just been very fun. So that's just getting finished up. I have, uh, and then the First Peter work, which I need to dive into this summer. I'm slowly uh, getting my head around the, both the text and I've taught it in Greek, so that's helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the kind of all the commentary monograph stuff that's out there. Um, doing, I taught a course on First Peter this spring, so that kind of kicked me into higher gear. Wow. Well, it sounds like you've got a lot going on. And if anyone listening is interested in those things, I'm sure we'll be able to find them online. Where you know. Do you have a place where you I typically d- talk about or let people know when your I, stuff comes out? Yeah, I have a, a blog that I do very little on, but it just it has a list of works. Janine okay. K. Brown, um, 
dot com. Okay. www.janinekbrown.com or something like that. Um, so, it, it, yeah, so anything coming out, I usually put a post up there. But I'm, again, not a great social media folk person, so... Well, you've been a great um, guest on a podcast, even if you're not a great social media person. This has been really interesting. And for those who are part of our church, if you would like Scripture's communication and would have trouble getting it, we'd be happy to get that for you and encourage you in your study of the Scripture. But Dr. Brown, thank you so much for giving up your time to talk with us about this important topic. Glad to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation. This podcast is a ministry of Resurrection Church in Burnsville, Minnesota. You can learn more at resurrectionmn.org.